0: Welcome to this episode of Lessons from the World's Best with me, Paddy Upton. In this interview, I speak to Oscar Chalupski, who is a once-in-a-lifetime high-performance machine. Few will ever be like the man, but almost all of us can learn some valuable lessons from him. He was the first ever lifesaver to win both the junior and senior Ironman on the same day, and to go on to win both the junior and senior life-saving Victor Ladorum the following year. While still at school, he played South African schools water polo, was a Springbok lifesaver, became the youngest Springbok canoeist, played provincial schools rugby, and was the South African Ironman champion and South African ocean kayak champion. All this before he left school. He went on to become 12 times world champion paddle ski or ocean kayak champion, winning his 12th title at the age of 49, 29 years after winning it for the first time. He accomplished all this as an amateur athlete during which time he worked full-time including building successful businesses in the year south africa was banned from participation due to apartheid policies he took up golf and a year later had a scratch handicap if you're a golfer stick around to hear his formula for doing this on the 24th of november 2019 and at the age of 56 he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and given four to six months to live today He is still running, swimming, kayaking, working and competing against the world's best while taking his cancer, plus a more recent diagnosis of skin cancer head on with a smile on his face and a glass of wine in his hand. What Oscar has accomplished is not too far off superhuman, but how he went about doing this leaves plenty of clues and lessons for you and I to get a little bit better at whatever it is that is important to us this is one hell of a conversation with Oscar Chluski on lessons from the world's best jumping straight in um, really awesome to to have you on the, the show Oscar quite a few um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time after meeting you 20odd years ago a number of listeners have been following your story and said please get Oscar on the show so it's awesome that I'm chatting to you. Um, whereabouts are you at the moment in the world? Thanks, Patty. Yeah,
1: I'm in Durban, uh, and I just witnessed. I actually flew in the day after the devastation. They've lost 300 lives here because of the floods, and uh, we drove up to Hilton yesterday and saw all the devastation, all the landslides, and it was it's amazing how many people have been affected. So at least the weather's sunny today, so hopefully the the rescuers and people will get in there and start clearing all the debris and all the mud. The beaches are Everything's chocolate brown and terrible, but that's yeah. happens in life
0: then. Sure. So we'll get to that. Um, Oscar, going straight back to your, you had the most incredible sort of during school and after school, multiple sports, South African champion or spring by colors. I was actually trying to read them all and make a note. Just talk us briefly through the four or five sports I think you played for South Africa or with the SA champ when you were younger.
1: Yeah, so so my my whole thing started when I was fifteen. I was actually racing a guy I won the junior and senior Ironman Man at fifteen. That was the first time in the in the history of the sport. Uh and then three months later a guy called Grant Kenny in Australia did the same thing. So and that's in life saving. Yeah, in life saving. And the interesting thing about that, and because of apartheid, we couldn't compete against him. So I ended up playing all sorts of sport. Obviously, I played for South Africa water polo, and I and I canoed for South Africa. I went to the Olympics for South African canoeing. Then I did life-saving and then surf ski, And I played all sports. And then I played for Natal Rugby, schools rugby, because I didn't carry on after that. And so my life's been one sport to another, and I've done every sport. You know, I even started when I was young. I was a cricketer, you see. So I did everything. My father never pushed me in, although he's the top Paddler in South Africa at the time, coming out of Germany. So I did so many sports, played tennis competently, and then took up golf when I was banned from paddling. Yeah, so that's a story in itself.
0: So what, 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 what was it that got you to be so successful in so many sports at a young age? I mean, obviously you had talent, but they say talent, talent is not enough. What got you to be? so successful in so many different sports. There's obviously some extra ingredient beyond talent that you must have brought to the equation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is it all started when uh, I was doing. I was going to – my father – I wanted a, a racing bike. So my father – honestly, we weren't uh, very uh, wealthy. So he said um, the only way you can get a racing bike is if you win Nipper Ironman, which is under 14, Nipper Ironman, which is swimming, board, and skis and running or yeah. in between. And from that day, it sort of changed my life because they I suddenly had a goal to win this Nip South African Iron Ironman champs. And I actually lost the Natal one and then realized, "She, I better start training. Because the reason why I was so successful as well is that I was a lot bigger than most people. But as you said before, is that I became very determined to win. And, and, and obviously... It it took a lot of uh, effort to train hard, and I realized, and my father never pushed us to train, but all he would say, listen, I'm going training at 6 o'clock. We're leaving at 6 o'clock to go swimming in the Westfield pool. You better be awake at 6, otherwise he just left. He never worried, so you went to all the best coaches and and did all that, but my psyche, once I'd won the junior and senior, uh, the junior nipper Ironman, I really kept on going from that day. So from age 13, I went in sort of stratosphere of training. I always made sure that I trained, I, I thought better than most people. And, and that was the the sort of the cactus was winning a little thing like a nipper Ironman. And from then, I was just always determined to win and I always tried to win. And
0: you ended up in your career most, you spent most of your time in a canoe or kayak paddling. How did you choose between all these different sports that you were so successful at, what made paddling pop out? Well, my father came from Germany
1: and was a top paddler. So that was one of the reasons. And then it sort of, I sort of gravitated, although he didn't push me into that sport because I was doing a lot of life-saving. I was doing a lot of water polo at the time. I was mad about water polo swimming. I was a top swimmer also at the time. And it's just I think it was, the main reason was just the fun of it. Uh, obviously, success, there's nothing better than success to stimulate your 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 love for a sport so i was also very successful because at 14 i was already going in fact i made the national the the life-saving team at 14 years old and i just turned 15 so th- at 15 i was already in that senior national team for life-saving which included uh surf ski paddling because the iron man i was good at the iron man and i was good at swimming and board so all the facets, but. It was just a little bit easier to uh, for me to paddle. I, I, I would win much more regularly on paddling than just on uh, Ironman. So that's why I so, started gravitating towards paddling. So, so, and the first big time that the first and only time that I had a chance to race against Grant Kenny was in 1983, a long time ago, in the in the to race, and that's how it all started. And that's where the paddling came in and again my father was going down to train so i just went with him you know so it was one of those progressions so he definitely stimulated our whole family my herman walter and my sister elma all paddled you know
0: okay so so you've had a whole heap of talent you've got this taste for victory that's created this amazing work ethic it's not driven by your parents or your dad but supported by it but even still it's there's the other ingredient is Particularly as a young man, you're coming up to the start line or final. There's a lot of kids who are talented and work hard, but then there's the thing that goes on in the mind. So, were you nervous as a young man competing? What was it like? Give us an insight into the mind of Oscar Chalipsky as a youngster, competing often against older um, and more skilled athletes at the time than you in the various sports.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real hard sort of button to find because. Number one, I was always well prepared. Number two, I trained hard, and number three, I had this sort of passion to win, and 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 I loved winning. Even though I ne- never knew how to win, because when I won the Junior and Senior Ironman for the first time when I was fifteen, I actually didn't even know how to handle the the accolades and people congratulating. I actually didn't even know that, and the mindset it was. I don't know. And I, and I always and I'd love to find out exactly what why it made me better. I mean, I used to be no, nervous. I used to line up, and, and thank goodness I was doing a water sport, and I could. Uh, I never forget. I'd line up to a race, and the the excitement wouldn't be that nervous, but I'd always urinate a little bit. You know, think, okay, now I'm ready. You know, so that, that was it. Was what's the okay. strangest thing? Probably nobody's even heard that. That's always just, just before a race. And thank goodness it's a water sport, so it's not a big deal. And, and there's a nervous energy coming out of my body. Would, I would just urinate in my, in my speedo at the time and, and get ready for a race. So that's, that's something that was very strange, but I knew I was ready. And I always thought I was better than everybody else. I just think if you think that before the race, the chances of losing are very difficult. That's why people always say that even when I lost, I thought I'd won. So that's the kind of attitude I had is that I really didn't think anybody's gonna beat me. Uh, even though in the in the ocean you had you were there's unlucky things that can happen, your wave hits you and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. I just didn't think I could get beaten. It was the strangest thing. And and it was funny that I even on, on swimming events when I said I want to win this race, I would actually win the race, even on events that I shouldn't win. But I just said, Okay, this race I actually want to win. So when I put my head to say I was going to win, I invariably did win. So, but what was that nth degree? I just, number one, I, I obviously was a little bit talented. I was, but I think my unbelievable belief in myself was probably the thing that, that made me different from everybody else. I mean, every interview I, w- I would say, no, I'm going to win this race. I mean, when I was racing the, wild, the people I said, what? One time, I said, "No, no, we're going to come first, second, and third in this race." And the guy said, "What? Are you crazy? How can you say that?" I said, "Well, I'm telling you." So I like—I always liked to walk the talk, and I used to actually do talking to put myself under pressure as well to say, "I'm going to win this race." So that straight away puts you under pressure to actually achieve, and maybe that also helped, and maybe that came across as arrogance or something like that. But I think that's Muhammad Ali did it the best. I mean, and and uh,
0: maybe ours is similar. So, so you were nervous at the start line at the beginning of a race. So you are normal. I had to be nervous. I, uh,
1: I was sort of nervous, but like a nervous confidence, you know. So it was a difficult. It was a different to most people, you know. Where, where I don't know if I, I mean a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm nervous. I can't sleep the night before." I didn't have any of that kind of stuff. Uh, just on the race day, uh, I were on the race on that race because I used to race so many times. You know, it's probably like a dog, they always seem to have enough you're into, we on a pole, you know, even if there's too empty poles. Yeah.
0: So in, in, in modern day sports psychology, there's the language is don't focus on the result, focus on the process um, and be in the moment. And the better you do that, the better chance of the results happening. So you wanted to win, you believed you could win. What was your mind, I mean, do you know even what was going on in your mind? What were your thoughts while you were actually in the race and competing? Because theoretically, according to popular sports psychology, you can't be thinking about the finish line when you, at the start, like at the Molokai, you're 52, the, the finish line is 52 kilometers away. You have to be in the race moment by moment for the duration. What goes on in your mind or went on your mind during a race?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right. I mean, you have to focus on, like, the start and make sure, okay. I mean, I always had a plan. I mean, I always, this it's one of my favorite saying is that if you want to build a really good house, everybody thinks that you need a good foundation, but that's not it. It's it's the plan, you know, and I've always had the plan. So at, at the start of a race, I said, okay, I'm going to go and ride this guy's slip, uh, this what guy's wake, and then at, when I see Moloka, I'm going to take off by myself, and then, I'll make sure that it, and then I make sure that – and then I send my escort boat to see how everybody else was doing. I always was aware of all that, and I was very, very focused on technique. My the whole thing was I knew if I kept my technique going the whole way through, I would win. So that was, was a serious focus uh, on technique, and then the technique sort of made me much better than most people. That's why at age 58 I still win races. I mean, and, and funny enough, I'm just going back in my memory – To September, when I raced, the the guy came second in the race in Brazil. He was 28, and I was 58, and I was wondering how it went. I mean, number one, I wasn't as fit as I should be because I just finished some chemo. But my mindset was, and and it's amazing. And when I came towards the end, I was lying in third place on the first day, and I said, "Hey, you've got to kill it." And and I thought I was. This is the strange thing. I thought I was was in second place. I thought when I overtook this guy, I'd be in So I killed myself. overtook him. And then when I got to the beach, there was somebody there before me. who beat me about one and a half minutes, which is like a stunning thing to happen to me. I, normally I know, okay, this is the last guy. And that's why I killed myself. And I think I also can push myself to the ultimate, to the limit as well, much harder than most people. Even though I wasn't that fit, I killed myself, to Overtook him. overtook him. And when I overtook the guy who I thought was winning, uh, uh, I carried on pushing hard because it's a four-day race and I wanted to get some time on him. And when I came to the beach, there was somebody there. I couldn't believe it. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But then I knew the next day, okay, now I have to really put down a hammer. But again, I seem to be able to push my body even if I'm not fit and even if I'm not 100% uh, perfect, much more than most people. You know, I really – it's amazing. I mean, I know like when I won my 12th Molaka, I was – in hyperventilating, how do you hyperventilate when you're on a fifty-two kilometer race? But I am telling you, if I'd fallen off my surf ski, I think I would have drowned. I would have gone straight to the bottom because I couldn't even breathe. So that's how hard I push myself. And I still, as I would say, focus on technique because I think that's uh, some old some old guy like me can actually beat youngsters because I'm always thinking of technique and I don't I don't regress into Bad technique and, and, and bad breathing and, and, and making my heart rate go through the roof. So I'm very technical because I've got all the things. So that's also something that I'm also different. I'm always watching my heart rate, my speeds, and all that stuff. And I only have two Garmin uh, GPSs on, one for direction and when I want to finish. And I've got speed, heart rate, time, distance. I'm, what I'm, I'm monitoring everything. So I really am focused on how to win. And anything that's going to make me win, you know. And I think the technique is one of the most important things as well.
0: Okay. I mean, and that, that makes a whole lot of sense now that you say this. So, you number one, you say you're really, really well prepared, which I always talk about if if you want to do well in an exam, you have to study the whole book. Uh, you've got a lot of confidence. You, you put the peg in the sand saying you're going to win, which puts pressure on yourself but you have a very clear and meticulous detailed plan that you're following, which keeps you in the moment in the race. And I was actually listening to another podcast you gave last night just on a canoeing show just in preparation for this. And I was in, you were talking about technique and particularly downwinds and the amount of detail that you were going into, it made a whole lot of sense that you really are present moment to moment. And if you do each moment exceptionally well, the chance of winning is great. We've mentioned the Molokai, just a lot of our listeners initially aren't necessarily going to be paddlers. So you're 12 times champion and that's sort of probably one of the biggest races in the world, the Molokai. Just tell us what what is the Molokai briefly? Just give us a snapshot for those who well, don't the know Well, the Molokai was
1: race. started uh, in, uh, 90, it was, uh, I was in the fifth Molokai, which was in 1983. And it's from the island of Molokai, a small little island, the closest island to Oahu. It's uh, 52 kilometers from, from Oahu, where Honolulu, where most people, where Tom Selleck was and Magnum P.I. was based in, on Oahu. And it's a leper colony in, in, in Molokai. And the wind blows and, and the Kaivi Channel, which is the, called the Channel of Bones, it sort of funnels the whole uh, uh, Pacific Ocean through this, this Kaivi Channel, which makes big waves and big wind. And, and it's known for wrecking ships in the old days and, and canoes and things like that. But funny enough, I like that stuff. So that the race has been going. A guy called Dale Adams was the first guy to cross the channel a, on a on a surf ski, and then the first winner, I mean, the m- multiple winner was Grant Kenny. He won this race four years in a row till I came along in 1983. Uh, so you normally got 15 to 20 to 30 knot winds, and you've got 15 to 20 foot swell, and it normally goes nearly in your direction, not quite in your direction. It comes uh, comes over your right shoulder. And, of course, you can have any it's weather as weather. So you can have most of the time there is good uh, wind, but you can have no wind and you can have headwind. So that's why I've won that race in three hours, 20, and I've won that race in five hours. So it's quite difficult training for a race like that. So what happened is I won the first seven uh, Molokais in a row, uh, beating Grant Canyon and a lot of Australians and New Zealanders and South Africans. And then then they banned me from going again because of apartheid. So that's when I took up golf. And then I came back and then won again and won again and, and then won and lost a few. And then in 2012, at the age of 49, I won my last one. And the guy came second to a guy called Clint Robinson from Australia. who was Olympic gold medalist when I went to my first Olympics in 1992. So long history that I've been there. And I, and I love the race because it's technical and you have to be very smart to win that race, uh, especially if it's windy.
0: Give give us a little insight into what does it take to win the Molokai in those kind of conditions? What pops you out?
1: Well, I mean, the most important thing is that you've got to be doing at least 30 to 40 kilometer paddles in downwind conditions so that you really are in tune with the waves. You have to have the, the distance because, again, as I told you, it can be three hours, 20. And then if there's no wind, it can be four hours. And if there's headwind, it can be five hours. So, that's the first thing. You have to really prepare. And, and I, I was always meticulous in that way, is that I always do technique. I, I either do technique or downwards. That's my training. And, and my downwinds. I like to do 40, 50-kilometer paddles even more because I love downwinds. So that's also a big thing is that it's not like work. It's not even like training for me to do a downwind. If I get in my boat and paddle 40, 50 kilometers, it's not even a problem. But what I do is I always do one day one day on and one day off so I get used to the Molaka and get to doing it then understand it's 12 time zones before you get to Hawaii so I'm normally always there 12 days before I don't take anything for granted I make sure that if I, if you've got a snivel on the plane you get that all out of you you get jet lag out of you because you're racing against the top guys in the world and then the big thing with that, normally when I was racing, f- I never forget my first race, I never even knew Grant Kenny. I never met him. I knew who, I, who he was, and he was four-time champion. I stayed with him, just marking him the whole time, and then I went hard. So as time progressed, and as I got slower, I, w- I would get a little bit more intelligent in that I used to, m- my escort boat didn't have to go next to me. Everybody has to have an escort boat because it's too rough. If you fall off or something goes wrong, you're going to end up drowning and not hit a wahoo. So I always got my escort boat to look where everybody else was and, and then just measured how far they're ahead, where they upwind of me, downwind of me. So I was always getting information so that I knew, knew when I could make my move. So in my 12th moniker, I was about 8th or ninth place with uh, an hour to go. So a long way behind. And just slowly picked the people off all the way. And I overtook my last guy three kilometers, Dean Gardner, three kilometers before. And I didn't actually know where. Clint was, but uh, he was actually lying in third. He overtook Dean Gardner, came second, uh, 12 seconds behind me. So it was that was a a really good race. And and it's funny that I've always left a little bit in reserve, or nothing in reserve, but I just seem to do much better than everybody else in the last three kilometers. It's just one of those things I always used to catch, no matter who it was, in the last kilometers and overtake and and win it normally in the last kilometers because, I think maybe I was a bit fitter, or maybe I could handle the conditions. Because I understand it's at least thirty, thirty-five degrees in the sun, and the water temperature is like twenty-eight, so it's really hot. Uh, and you've been pushing yourself very hard for a long time, and it just takes um, extreme brain power. You know, that's the, I think that's something that I also I'm pretty good. At, is that I don't let my body take over from my brain, and I think that happens to a lot of people when you get tired your brain goes and then your technique goes and everything goes where and you feel tired and and say so you've got to keep that brain positive so that 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 the body doesn't overtake it you know and if you've got that positive attitude you can overcome a lot of things and one of the things is fatigue and sore muscles then you get sore ass i mean all these things happen and it's, it's up to your brain to sort of blank that out and say listen we're going for the win here let's go
0: did you did you train your brain to do that, or how how did you get to that place?
1: I think it's it's a little bit of training. Funny enough, I mean, uh, every time, like for example, I would train for the Monaco, I would, in the middle of Durham in, in summer, I would dress up like it was the middle of winter in Cape Town. So I'd prepare for the heat and things like that. So I did a little few things like that. Then I would put, uh, if I was racing against people, and people think, oh, no, I'm, I'm keeping up with Oscar. But they didn't know I had a 10-kilogram lead weight in my boat I would always do things so that I would keep up with them, and they would be—they'd feel they're fairly close. But what would happen was, was I was under big duress. My body was—I was overheating. I had a heavy boat, and I would keep up to those people, and I sort of trained myself. Like people can't believe it when I in, in the races in the in the Guadeloupe race, which is also fifty kilometers, and it's. 35 to 40 degrees in the sun and the water temperature is 30 I take no water they can't believe it and if I, t- I have a sip I might do 20 milliliters of water in a four-hour race nothing and I, and I know I've just sort of trained my, trained my brain I don't need water my body's got everything you know and also race faster which is also an interesting thing I mean those are all those things have sort of changed over time how I've, how I've made my body sort of uh, really I ha- <laughs> when you're this age you have to have every slight advantage on the, on the youngsters, you know, and and these are all the small things that when I tell them, they can't believe it, you know.
0: So, so you were doing all of this stuff back in the eighties through the nineties, early two thousands, canoeing and kayaking and open ocean stuff. It wasn't professional. There wasn't a whole lot of science. Where were you, how scientific was the sport and were you and where did, Talk to us. I mean, there's the questions I ask. I know you're very close to Tim Noakes through all the years, and I wonder if stuff comes from there. But it sounds your preparation sounds incredible for a relatively amateur, smaller sport.
1: Yeah. So, so obviously, when I played rugby, I realised what in a different league I was. So it was funny that I wasn't playing rugby and, I, and matric. I was getting the shits with all the people getting all the accolades at the schools playing rugby, and I said, "Oh." And I was sitting there, my standard nine, the year before my last year, and I said to some mates, that I said, oh, I think I'm going to play in the tall schools. Now, our school, Whistle Boys, had never even been had a, a single player playing for the tall schools, and I said, oh, I'm going to play in the tall school." I didn't say I'm going to play first year, I said, the school. And then I realized when I was training, and no matter what who the guys I was playing with, I was much fitter than everybody else. And again, I think it comes back to what I said earlier on: is that if you're so much fitter, your brain's so much smarter, so you become smart. So that's why I was always a smart rugby player, smart water player, because I understand when you are shutting down, when you are shutting down, your brain's the thing that goes, and that's what what people uh, what happens to people losing races. That that showed me, and and I saw how unscientific the rugby players were at the time, because nobody was getting paid, and I was really really scientific. I knew how to sleep well. I knew how to do all those kind of things, and, and I read lots of books. So Tim Noakes came along in, I think, 1980 already and said, um, when I when I raced a race uh, uh, the last day of the PE Sludden and I had no water for six hours, they said, oh, you've got to be dehydrated. Let's see, take his body temperature, and it was all perfect. And that's where he started developing this book called Waterlogged. And so from that young age, I already knew that, Carbide loading didn't work for me. I knew that I wanted to make sure that everything was the same as like when I'm training. And and I, and I used to train a lot. I mean, no, make no mistake, I was like at 4.30 in the morning, train till 8 o'clock, work all day, train the evenings, weekends, big days, you know. So this is the interesting thing, and and maybe that's why I was so good is that I never ever was a full-time athlete. I always worked. I had a family and I was unlucky that I picked the family that wanted to spend a lot of money so I'd actually earn big money. I couldn't be like eating post-toasties, you know. So they, they, they like the Gucci shoes and things like that. So I actually had to do well at my work, which I did, and I started several good companies. But I was definitely a bit cleverer than most in everything I did. I, I just knew. Like in 92, when I got beaten in the Olympics, I changed my technique, and I went to my technique. And now my technique, slowly the people – around the world realized, oh, Oscar's thought about this more than anybody else. So when I'm in a training paddle, not only I'm thinking how fast I'm going to be and, and how I'm, my water intake, but I'm thinking, how can I get faster and how can I help other people, which I, I I love doing? So I think I was more scientific than most people. And as I say, 2006, the first ever and watch came out and from that day i've documented every single paddle i've done every run every swim everything gets documented and i take that information and see how i'll do it like now i never used to do gym i used to do a specific gym now and then i've said okay well now as i get older i feel i'm losing at the beginning of the race i lose too much time at the beginning of the race and i catch everybody even at this age at 59 so that's why i started crossfit so spoke to Tim about that. I said, what? And I just think your muscles your muscles at this age start deteriorating. When I was young, I, I don't think I needed gym because I, I was doing so much. I didn't really need it, so I didn't do much. And when I went to the Olympics, everybody did gym. And I had to, then I had to do hundreds of pushups ups and dips, and I hated that stuff. I said, what am I doing this for? My technique's about using my core and my legs, and now I'm doing pull-ups and push-ups and dips. I said, I don't need this. But now, as I get old, and I think my – Muscles are deteriorating. I'm doing CrossFit, and I can see the benefits. I'm getting stronger and stronger.
0: Sure. I mean, it's it's fascinating listening. I mean, I've always watched your results, but now I'm really hearing more about the process. That you know, I, I talk when I talk to athletes. I talk about the best athletes in the world are their own best coach. They use other coaches, but they don't rely on other coaches. And there's something in that about having an entrepreneurial mindset as an athlete that it's not okay just to be doing and copying the best in the world. An entrepreneur will go ahead and do more and better and cleverer. And I'm hearing with you, you are a successful entrepreneur and that you built a number of successful businesses at the same time. But you brought that entrepreneurial mindset to your sport and gone ahead of everyone else who was doing, you know, the same things they've always done.
1: Yeah. And I always mean, say, I mean, I cannot believe what kind of sheep humans are. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, this is successful. They just go down the, that route. And I just said, no way. I know better than all these guys and I'm proving myself. And it's taken 20 years for the guys to realize, she's what Oscar, they first used to say, Oh, this Oscar's a surf ski. So I said, come on. I beat, I never forget. I was 44 years old and the current world marathon uh, champion was Hank McGregor. And we'd we we we'd, we'd done uh, 20, 25 kilometers downwind, and we're neck and neck. We came to this, and then we stopped. And basically, it was one and a half kilometers to the finish. Flat water because we because it was we came around the corner like a Molokai, but it was in Durban. was from uh, Toti to Durban, D-U-C. Turned around the corner. At my 44, remember, you're over the hill at 44, and I'm ra- racing him. He's 30, 30, 29, 30. So he's in this prime. He's just world marathon champs. On the flat water, I've been about one minute and one and a half minutes. people people got so upset that his mother actually threw a punch at me and said, what? she couldn't believe that this 44 year old has been beat her son who's in her prime. She must have thought I was something strange, you know. And that difference is there's that number one, I prepared my route to finish. And number two, my technique I know is better than most people. Because because 'cause I'm not stronger than him. I'm much older than him i have much more fun i still have a i drink much more than him that's guaranteed because he doesn't even drink <laughs> once in a blue moon so i have fun so that's why everything i do is a lot of fun i mean i do burn the candle at both ends because because i have fun but i'm not but not that badly because i i, I still do focus when i had i had a, an um uh, what do you with those things uh, atrial fibrillation they said no more drinking before a race. So I've stopped drinking before a race. But before a race, I would just have a few beers and things like that. Now, two days before a major race, I won't drink just to save my heart, you know. But again, it's all scientific. I work, I, I, I actually knew about this uh, ketogenic diet about six months before Tim started even. I knew about it because the doctor told me, and then it made so much sense to me. I said, oh, okay. So that's how I started. A guy called Eric Borgnes, who's a radiologist, told me about it. I think in 2010 already, so long time before it was like the the common thing to do. So these are all the things I did. The doc, so going back to my diet as well. I also read lots of things and I tried things. I was vegetarian. I did harsh drinking carbs and I did Noakes's carb things. So, but I, I used to work it out myself. What is actually best for me.
0: So in, in trying to figure all this stuff out and bringing this, what I, in my language is entrepreneurial mindset to your sport and putting lead weights in a boat and dressing in, in Durban, dressing up in warm clothing to mimic you must have done some pretty crazy or, uh, things that, that didn't work that people must have looked at you and thought, geez, this oak is nuts. Nearly nuts. <laughs> I mean, you, can, like that up, that yeah, I mean, you can imagine I come to Durban in the
1: middle of summer and I'm dressed like it's a middle of winter <laughs> I always say, listen, I hope the weather that you're expecting doesn't come here because, my gosh, it's bad. And let me tell you, it happened the other day. It was not long. Three years ago, I was tra- I in a full wetsuit in the middle of summer in Portugal and gets 30 degrees. And I, I was going for a 40K paddle. And after 25Ks, that was it. Body shut down. Fogged my wife, came to shore, and these things happen. These things happen. But I still know that was the right thing because when I race against all these guys, I seem to... I mean, people... That was also another thing which is very difficult, for, different from me and everybody is that I trained average. And the reason why I trained average, I normally, like, I never forget there's one Springbok trial for battling and the guys were training with me. And I'd already done a session. Then I'd go with them and I'd be struggling to keep up with them. And then come the race, I'd win by a So that's why they, they, or everybody thought, no, 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 Oscar, it must be on drugs. This is unbelievable. I was beating him. I mean, there's a, there's a nice race report from a guy, Daryl Bartha. He was like, again, he's also 10 or 15 years younger than me. He said, I beat Oscar all the time in training. And, but in the race, he beats me every time. What is this? And that's also something that is very different. I mean, people get close to me in training, but in the race, it's like day and night. And it's just, and, and, it's, and even my son, my son was beating me at paddling. Just, my son was beating me at paddling when I trained. I couldn't even stay with him. Come the race, I' beat him by five minutes. I said, What's going on? What happened and a lot of people I do that to so many people, and that is something that when it's when it's a race, I think I just push my my body to uh, another level. I think that's what happens
0: How do you explain that it's it's, it's one of those things that, uh,
1: that is that i am so different so, i mean like when people say and, I, and it actually makes me cross I, I, I never forget uh, when when um when the guys got selected for the, this current Tokyo Olympic Games. And they were, I said, why are you guys going to the Olympic Games? No, no, you know, it's being there. I said, what? Going there? I'm not interested in going there. Like when I went to the Olympic Games, I was so mad that I didn't get it. I'll go there for gold. I, they said, oh, it was a very nice experience. I said, I'm not interested for in the experience. I'm there to win. So I was embarrassed for this water polo team that got beaten now. South Africa got beaten by 20 goals every game. And you know, they came back to, oh, it was such a good experience. I would be embarrassed. I wouldn't, some people tatted the Olympic rings on. I, would, I wouldn't be embarrassed. So you say, oh, how was your Olympic? Oh, no, we, we got beaten every single game by 20 goals. That's like getting beaten in rugby by hundred nil every game. And you think you're proud of it. I was, that's, I was always so focused. And funny enough, I even missed some teams. Because I mean, I had obviously a lot of people that wanted to do the, the, the more successfully or the tall poppy. They didn't want to put me in the teams, but when I made a team, I made sure I won. So we were—I was always the best once I was competing internationally and in, in all my sports, you know. So what, what that, you know, it's a good question. Why am I so? And again, I think it's from the from the beginning. Is that I was just so focused thinking that nobody's going to beat me. I want to make sure I beat you. I did all the preparation before and I had the mindset, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself to win. And I, and I, and I would. That would literally do that.
0: But it's, it's still interesting that you say in training, these guys would be close to you, but in the race, there'd be a big difference. Were you holding yourself back in training a bit, or is there something more that you find within, in a race?
1: There's two things. I always used to train stressed, which means that I'd really done like a – say I'd done a 10K run, I'd gone to swim, and then I'd go and train. So I would have done a little bit more than everybody else. And then – so straight away that would give – and I think that's something that I'm thinking about it now is that I had a bit of a psychological advantage because I knew what I'd done. They didn't know. So I'd done a little bit more work than them, trained a little bit harder, and knew – when the time come, I was going to beat them. And then I had the mindset that nobody's going to beat. Them. I'm going to be much faster than everybody else in the race. So I had the mindset and I had the, the, the plans before to make my mindset so strong that I said, no way they're not going to beat me in the actual race and which happens all the time.
0: Sure. There's an interesting story about your 12th Molokai that you won at 49 years old and, why you actually decided to paddle that race. Tell us that story. Well, you see, the, the, the funny thing is, is that
1: it was to do with, because I was working at a company called Epic Kites, which I started, and we, weren't, we were doing well, but I wasn't getting paid like I should be. And then it was funny that the, the Molokai and, and, uh, and I said, no, no, and all the top guys went. And funny enough, and this is an interesting, a guy called Matthew Bowman, who I normally train with, but he said, on the Molokai, I'm not going to train with Oscar because he's going to psych me out. <laughs> so that's what he said. And he's six foot seven, six foot eight, built, doesn't drink, is the the best specimen of an athlete you'll ever come across, faster than anybody in training. Beats every, I mean, I can't even stay with him in training. And we had all the best paddlers and and it was funny that Herman was playing golf with a couple of my mates and, and they said, oh, so how's Oscar going to do in the round? He said, oh, Oscar will never win. I'll eat my, Underpants if he if he wins because there's just too many good guys and he's 49 years old. But again, I, I went through the same same uh, mindset. I did all my training. I was I was in my in my hot weather gear in the hot Durban and did the training and my training runs were going just as well as they always do. And and I had a burning desire and I said no, I need to win this race. So that's. I get paid more, and people respect me more. And and it's funny. And and this time, and again for Molaka, I would always use it lose about twenty kilograms before the race. Twenty kilograms. You can see how much fun I had. I was drinking and having fun, but I would break, drop down twenty kilograms. I was on a ketogenic diet, and off I went. And just I just out of Interest over
0: over what period of time would you drop that twenty kilograms?
1: Three kilogram, three months, three months. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I was understand. I was never unfit. I'm never unfit, but I was. But I, I would drink that. My in my consumption was higher than my output. So I would okay. So so you were sort of dr- yeah. So you're drinking fit or paddling fit? Yes, yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and and I try and keep them quite. I try and keep that balance better. So <laughs> okay. and I'm, I, I'm actually normally better. I mean, I have had this thing in my head uh, yeah. the, that 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 uh, stopped me training for four weeks. Okay. So. I was a bit slack, so now a bit slack, but getting back into it. So I trained hard. I did everything right. And come the race, the conditions were good because, again, in flat water, I doubt I'm not in the league of these guys because they can just hammer away. They're just so much faster than me. But I let them go and I just slowly picked each one off and off and off. And like I do most races, when I catch, every time I catch a guy, I normally surf right up to them. And I give them a word of encouragement, like saying, "Hey, hey, Dean, you're paddling so well. Keep it up." Now I've just caught him up, and you say that to somebody, I can tell you right. Most of their brains just fry, and they stop paddling. They just about stop paddling. So that happens to me a lot of times. I mean, paddling around, so uh, around the corner at, at Hawaii Kai, and I'm paddling into the wind, and then. And I uh, see I'm winning and nobody's going to beat me at the last thing. But it's funny that, and especially Dean Gardner, who was, who had won uh, nine all He was, he, when he's behind me, he's not a f- good flat water player. I'm not the best, but i um, still went to the Olympics and pretty fast, but he was, wasn't going to catch me. So I was paddling quite comfortably because I'm winning. I can't see anybody behind me. And then I, my escort boat shouts, Oscar, watch out. And there comes Tim Bromson, double Olympic gold and silver and all these. And obviously 12 years younger. And, off I'm, and I look around and there he's, there he's coming. But he didn't manage to catch me. And I, and I won my 12th by about, I think, 12 or 14 seconds over three hours, 23. And an interesting thing, he had won two in a row. So Clint had won two in a row. I wasn't there. He won two in a row. And then I came along and broke his uh, hat-trick attempt. And he broke his record that he did the year before. So he went very hard. So did I. And uh, again, it just shows you, you put your mind to it, no matter what age you are. I think you can do it, and that's why I love racing and I love training. So that's it's not it's it's not training for me because I just love it so much. You know, I just I enjoy it and I enjoy the. It's, and you can ask anybody. I like racing all the time. I mean, I race my GPS to beat it. I, I race everything. Everything I do, no matter what sport it is, I try and win. Golf, anything, Ted, tiddlywinks, table tennis, snooker. I did it all at the at the top level. You know.
0: I want to just jump back to a period that you mentioned earlier. You, when you were banned through apartheid, you took a year off and you played golf. You started the year. What was your handicap when you started that year or started playing golf that year? Oh, My handicap
1: was non I was probably like a 36 handicap okay. you played the game at, the, at all.
0: And at the end of the year, your handicap was? Scratch. Scratch. So how did you go, not having played golf, you didn't have an obvious talent for golf, how do you go from a non-golfer to scratch in one year? Give us the
1: secrets. So the, the, the first secret, the reason why I did it, number one, I was banned from paddling. And number two, I thought, geez, these golfers earn a lot of money. You know, when I won a race, I want a bottle of wine. These guys winning ten and twenty and thirty thousand dollars. I thought, what the hell? I think I must take this sport up because then I can actually be professional. I don't have to work if I get good at this sport. So first thing I did, and I think this is in life, you've got to Take these things into consideration. First thing, I got a coach. The most important, I got two coaches. One that would wake up because I and understand. I was working full time. I was at that time. I was working for Sandlam, and I was the top PPS agent. So it's Professional Problem Society. And I would get to the golf course. It's pitch dark at Roldom. Never forget. At four thirty a.m., it's dark. And the only thing I could do, because the pro said the best way to get to scratch this fast is have a good short game. So that's i took it to eat short game so i'd get there early in the morning the only thing open was one flood light on a bunker and all i did was stay in that bunker in that bunker till it got light and then once it got light i practice slightly longer chips up to 100 meters and when i got more light and i did that every single day you know so my coach one of my coaches Gary roscoe he'd i'd say come uh, play with me early in the morning and i would wake him up even a big night and say hey we're going four thirty, four every day so i used to go from four thirty to 8 8 o'clock in my office work till 5 o'clock uh, doing insurance and then come back and train again and on weekends i used to do 12 to 16 hours a day on a saturday or sunday so play 18 holes carry on practicing I got so good, and I'll never forget. I was, uh, even took Derek James; I took him on on the short game, and Ernie Els on the short game because that's how good my short game got. My short game was unbelievable. In fact, the worst thing about it was that my long game wasn't actually that good. It's funny, I, and and even with all my, I'm actually I play now when I, I when I had my cancer. They they said they were not allowed to play golf, so for two years they didn't play. When I came back, I was really good. My long game's getting better, and I just got better and better and better. But in those times, I put a lot of time into it, effort and practice, you know. And I've always got this saying, uh, practice makes perfect. And I say, that's absolute rubbish. Practice makes permanent. So if you don't have a good coach to make sure that practice makes perfect with a perfect technique and with a perfect swing, that's what happens. So I did that. And it's funny, at the end of the year, when I was playing, I was playing with a guy called Graham Beck that all South Africans know, they drink his champagne. And when I played with him and I shot like one or two over at Royal Cape, he said, okay, Oscar, this is, this is what I want to do for you. And I remember he's one of the wealthiest guys in the world. He said, Oscar, I will pay for you, your wife, Claire and your son, Luke, to go to David Ledbetter, the best coach in the world for one year, guaranteed. You just come and shoot under par at Clavelli Country Club. And funny enough, just before the, the, I was going to play with him to, to shoot this round. His mother died, and then all bets were off. So I didn't become a pro. So Targa and uh, Ernie are very lucky, you know. <laughs> but again, and again, and that's that's the funny thing. If I'd become yeah. a pro, I I just look, and Targa probably is a, sim- a similar kind of guy to me, where I just think I'm going to be the best in the world. There's no way, and if it, I'll do whatever it takes to do that, you know. So I would be the eight. If I was doing a full time sport, I would be doing ten or twelve hours a day practicing. I would easy done that, you know. So that's the kind of mindset I have on any sport, you know. So, so and then, can you believe, it? that was in 1990. I, was about, I won from 83 to 90. Then 91, I got the call. Hey, my friend, Piers Stratum, uh, said, Oscar, we're going to the Olympics. And again, I was fat and lazy, just playing golf all the time. Oh, didn't paddle anything. And I uh, so we're going to the Olympics. I said, don't worry, I'll make the team, don't worry. And, and exactly, I went back from golf, back to paddling, and made the Olympic team. To go to Barcelona,
0: so it wasn't something you wanted to carry on playing golf. The fact that you went back to paddling, no. You see, the thing is, I realised that I wasn't. And again, a lot of people
1: talk you out of it. I understand that. A lot of people are like, "Oh no, you can never do it." And I mean, I, and I know, and I just knew. Olympics was Olympic was in my in my. My father tried to go to the Olympics. He didn't go because he was also banned from being South African. He didn't go, and then. I, I said, okay, well I might as well go to the Olympics and I did, you know. And again, I wanted to go to the Olympics not to go to the Olympics, I wanted to go to the Olympics to win gold medals. I didn't I never go there just to compete. So and then I realised and I still keep playing golf and always play around between five and ten. And if I practice a little bit, I go quickly down to five or six handicaps. I'm comfortable on the on the golf course still, you know, and I love my golf. I love my golf. I, I like playing it a lot, but it's just it's a lot of a lot of things that I do, so it's quite difficult, you know. So at the moment, the currently now when I get back to Portugal, I normally do I swim six times a week, I paddle seven times a week, I do CrossFit three times a week, I cycle three times a week and run three times a week. So you can imagine there's quite a lot of time that I'm doing. So I haven't got that much time for golf, you know, and and, and I just do it for fun and I and I can hold my own, you know.
0: just how how did that that ninety two Olympics go for you?
1: No, we I was in a K four. I mean I, I was by the time the Olympic Trials. I was probably first or second. The the, the and the guy got the thousand K one slot was Mark Burrow. He actually died in an airplane crash about a year ago. Uh, but he got that slot, and then we were also in the K four together, and we made the semifinals. That was it, and we were way off the mark. Which that's I said, no way. I'm not going to be so far off the mark ever again. You know. So it, it, again, I was sort of the team leader of the whole of the South African team basically the 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 representative for all the athletes at the so i met nelson mandela and uh and i was always in the meetings and things like that so that was fun and and but it wasn't fun getting beaten a in a kayak in the k4 and and we were quite a way off we were about four or five seconds off on a three minute twenty you know three oh six uh thousand meter k4 so very disappointing. But again, you can imagine we only trained for basically one year.
0: Yeah. So loads and loads of success in different places. If you sort of go back in your sort of first 50 years, were there any significant disappointments or upsets that you needed to navigate and deal with? You know, it's a funny thing. The only one that actually comes to
1: mind is, is that I was at Whistle Boys High, standard nine. By standard nine, I was in the national team. I'd really played, I was playing, South African schools water polo standard eight, nine, and ten. Natal schools water polo, and the, and this is senior uh, Natal schools instead standard six, seven, eight. And I was, and I, I was going, destined to be in the first team rugby. And I was playing tennis. and I did all these things, and everybody said, "Okay, Oscar's a, shoot, a sure thing for head boy or or vice head, or you know, at least a prefect." I was not. I was nothing. I didn't get. I didn't make the make the grade you know so which was which was very strange for me and it's one of that and for me to talk about it now at age 59 you can see that was probably the biggest disappointment but it was the biggest lesson then I said okay you can't do anything about it I couldn't do anything about it father father wasn't like involved us creeping the 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 masters and, and the teachers so I didn't make it I mean and funny a lot of the guys that were prefects were Believe me, should never be in prefix. The, most of the guys were the guys that smoked the most, you know, and, and were the naughtiest where I was already super disciplined, you know, super but disciplined you had, you, at that
0: age. Had You not, you hadn't started your drinking career properly by then, by any chance? No, I never drank till 25.
1: Yeah. I could teetotaler till 25. And so it was funny that the people used to say, oh, come on, ask a drink. When I was in the water polo team, again, I was the youngest. I was, I was like, 13 14 and the next guys 25 you know so I was the youngest and it was hey come on drink and I never drank till 25 you know so and my wife always says I married I didn't marry a drinker I never married a golfer and I've got all these things now okay Bad.
0: <laughs> okay and then the the story that obviously we most people know now a couple of years back you had the back pain for a long time and then eventually got to a place where you discovered your current medical condition. Just talk to us. I mean, it, yeah, it's so it's funny enough, wellness. it's such
1: an easy yeah. date to remember. It was the 25th of November. I had my MRI and I asked the radiologist, What is going on? My MRI, MRI. I couldn't even lie down for the whole MRI. I had to come out three or four times because that's how much pain I was in. And she just pointed out that he has a tumor in your spine. So, and then when I got the news, it was on the 25th of November, 2019. Um, you've got cancer, and this is a secondary cancer. You've got four to six months. That's what I can get. Well, I can guarantee you that. So, And that was the day before my wife's 60th birthday, which I'd organized a, a, a very special getaway with some friends, just took other couples to a place called Sixth Cents on the Dura Valley, like a seven star hotel. And then she, obviously she broke down crying and said, oh, I, mean, I can't have a party with this going on. I said, listen, we are going to have a party because I think that's the most important thing in life is to carry on. I'm not did not get run over by a bus. I'm here. And I, believe me, I'm feeling healthy. And I was feeling healthy, but at least I knew. And, and, and then I phoned my Eric Borgness, the same guy who put me on a, keto, a, keto, a ketogenic diet. He said, no, this is you. And I said, I'm going back to South Africa in December. He said, no, you must get back a little bit sooner than that go tomorrow or the next day because this is serious and surround yourself with support. And and I was lucky, very fortunate, that about an hour before I was going to have an operation on my back to see what this tumor was in my spine, the guy said, no, 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 this is uh, multiple myeloma. And I said, okay, what the hell is that? I don't know. Well, that's bone marrow cancer. I said, so what? Okay, we can carry on. Can I keep paddling? I can do it? No, no, there's a little bit of admin here. So first thing I did is do radi- radiation into my, into my, my tumor which reduced it. I was on morphine the whole time. And on the 25th of December, they'd radiated it enough so that it shrunk enough. So I wasn't pushing it on my spinal cord. And then I was pain-free and I went straight off the, the morphine again. So I'm not sort of an addictive. I, I think I might be addicted to winning races, but I'm never addicted to beer or wine. I can I also have, always normally do in the first of March, I have one month of no drinking. So I do that as well. So I'm, I'm not one of those addicted things. So, then I had chemo for six months every week for two and a half hours. That, that was quite tough through COVID. And then I had, uh, basically they take your, your stem cells. So I was lying there for six and a half hours on the bed. And I thought, Oh, that's easy. Just lying in this position. But let me tell you, to not move for six and a half hours, one of the hardest thing you'll ever do. And the worst thing is I, I didn't realize how long it's going to take to to harvest my stem, cell, stem cells, and you're on a centrifugal, so with the blood running through your whole body into the centrifugal, getting the stem cells. I needed a wee, and now what I do? I'm lying there, so it was the first time I had a nurse holding my private parts, and I was doing a wee, which is quite embarrassing. That's never
0: happened okay, to me so, before. So it's going from weeing in your costume as an athlete now to weeing Lime in a bottle. It's just, well, it's yeah, somebody else bottle. holding it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and
1: then uh, it was interesting that then once I'd had that, then you wait for a while because they freeze it and they get all the good stuff out of the stem cells. And then you have a stem cell transplant, which is really hard because they basically kill you, get close as possible to death, and they give you your stem cells back, and then it takes a week to sort of work. And when, you, when I came out of the hospital after three weeks, I could walk 200 meters and it would take me 24 hours to recover from a 200 meter walk. But I still really, and I also lost 15 kilograms in that short time because I kept on ketogenic. And, and I think the reason why I had no effect on my, on my, in my chemo is that I always was on a faster state. I always got a faster state to have my chemo and I come out of chemo, then I have one and everything. And people say, what are you crazy? And it's still today. I had my chemo, then we'd go and uh, have some wine and enjoy life and then fast again, you know, always fast before my chemo session.
0: So if we go back to that 25th of November 2019 when you get the message, what goes on really in your mind? I mean, yes, you've heard the you – know, what goes on in your mind then? when the news um, see,
1: It was funny that, that, again, it was like Claire was – my wife was – howling, you know. So she was like very upset and I sort of probably shed one or two tears. But I said, God, look what I've done in my fifty the time, six years. I said, I'm not worried. Let's see. There's I'm not worried one bit. And and again, you see, I don't know what that is. And I number one, I never ever worry. I say to people, this is the one thing I say to people, don't ever worry. In fact, do me a favor, get in that toilet right there. Sit there for five minutes. Worry the most that you can and see if anything in the world changes. Nothing changes. So I didn't actually even – it didn't even worry me. My wife says, oh, you crazy. I mean, well, this is going to fine. Have the birth. I said, bullshit. I'm alive and, and well. And I'm not, until somebody uh, closes my eyes, I am alive and well. And they're going to have to do some – Hell of a lot of things to kill me that easy, you know. And it's already been over two years, and and this disease, and although it's incurable, it's gone from five years to seven year uh, lifespan. So, and I'm la- living life to the full, and I'm actually like, beating it even more. There's a few strange things. I mean, it does every time you go for a chemo and you see all these people all solemn and taking their chemo, it does give, give you reality, but it doesn't really affect me i come out of there and say okay well that's that's done i'm gonna carry on they always give you when i'm having my chemo they give you nausea i said i don't need anything i feel nothing for this stuff just give it to me and i'm gonna go and and that's what's happened. And when you get a you know, you know when i got my skin cancers i was lucky i'm one of the lucky few i didn't get bone marrow cancer i get skin cancer amber i get two for the price of one which not many people get that so it's, i'm lucky you know so so these things happen
0: so you're doing a lot of work now around cancer and cancer awareness and that. What do you say to people who don't have that incredibly strong, positive, don't worry mindset? That's that's not normal. That's unique. So what do you say to people who, who can't find that depth or level of positivity or struggle to find it? I think, I think
1: you've got to surround yourself with people that are more positive. You've got to basically – you can follow me and, and you'll see there's not a day that I'm, I'm negative. Not a day. I don't think there's even when I've just come out of operating and they've got turbans on my head and they've taken the skin out of my stomach. Still doesn't worry me. I still feel positive. I'm awake. I'm alive. And, and I think the attitude, and you can learn from other people. I mean, just like I made it public that I got cancer, other people that hide behind it, rather make it public and let the people support you people that you don't even know and they can they will help you and, and everybody wants to help each other so that's something i think so so follow people that are positive that have got cancer and i think that helps a lot because you can realize huh? Oh, i mean i had this this uh, chris morris is a springbok water polo and a friend of mine his cousin rick morris has got the same thing i mean he was going through some strain he sent him the sent sent a clip of my video paddling uh, with cancer and he and it's just like changes his life he says oh you can't believe how positive he is now. He's just changed yeah. by just me giving him a, a sort of a lecture and saying, Listen, you're alive, keep strong and, and have a strong mindset. And you can train yourself to have a strong mindset. And I, and I believe, and, and at the end of the day, all you need is a coach like me and, and like you, because that's what it takes. I mean, I'm, to be me the best, I never woke up. I, ne- I, I never woke up being the most motivated person in the world. I mean, woke up, never was born the most motivated person in the world. I trained myself to be that. And i got coaches and people help me, but I did it myself to change your attitude. And I think people must change their attitude. And if they change their attitude, they'll reap the rewards. They'll reap the benefits. I know that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's not just in beating and fighting cancer. It's in any area of life as you have the right attitude. And, The research out there suggests that we are the, you know, the average of the five people we spend the most amount of time with. So if you surround yourself with positive, uplifting people who believe in you, you, that's going to spill over into you, whether you're an athlete or a a cancer fighter or or anything in between. It's, you know, I was just talking to one of them at at the IPL Cricket in India at the moment and talking to one of the players about the value of picking the right people to spend the majority of your time with, people who add value, lift you up, um, and how contagious that positivity or on the flip side, negativity can be with the people you choose to, to listen to and spend time with.
1: Oh, 100%. I 100% agree with that. You know, you just don't want negative people. You just cut them out of your life if they're being negative and, and just surround yourself with positive people and you know, it takes a team. I mean, even though I'm not a cricketer, that's a team sport. Uh, I think individual sports have a bigger team behind it. It's, you haven't. It's, it's not a normal thing, but for me to be the best paddler in the world, I had to have a wife, a driver, and, and then I have to have people that are surrounded. There's always a team behind it. Just, there's no such thing as an individual sport. There's no such thing as an individual business person. You need everybody to make business work, to make your life work, to make your sport work, everything. It needs a team. And rather surround yourself with positive people that give you positive energy because that will rub off 100%. Yeah.
0: Now, and probably even more important now that we're moving through and out of COVID is just to be really discerning about the people we step, spend time with, the mindsets we cultivate, the people we draw into, and sometimes cut out of our lives. I think in all regards, it's more important probably now than ever before. 100% agree. So what's, what lies ahead for Oscar Chulipsky? Well,
1: so I keep training and keep winning and keep doing everything i'm doing the only difference is i'm I'm, I'm, i've written a book uh, and it's called no retreat no surrender and and the big thing about this book is just not a it's a sort of a biography and self-help so it's a motivational book like after every chapter the mistakes I made and the mistakes that I, i learned on every chapter so that's that launches on the 15th of August. I've written with a guy called Graham Spence who wrote the book called Elephant Whisperer, so a very good writer. And I'm happy that most people that have, that have that read the book said it's one of the best books they've read. So like anything, so, so Jake White was the biggest selling book. He sold 209,000 copies of his book, Black and White. So when I told the publisher I'm going to sell 210, they said, Oscar, but the market's changed and people don't sell that many books anymore and they don't. I said... That's my only goal for South Africa is to sell 210,000 books. And uh, and the difference is I will do it. Because, and it's funny. I speak to the publisher. He first says, no, no, you won't sell that. I said, okay. And then after an hour speaking to me, he says, oh, maybe we'll do it. And then the marketing person met me. and said, no, I don't understand. Uh, people like Sia Khaleesi sold 50,000 books. And uh, these people sell 5,000 and 10,000. I said, I don't care. 210,000, that's how many books we're going to sell and this is how we're going to do it. And again, I'm already planning and I'm doing everything to make that happen. And when I, and that's the difference between me, when I sat with that marketing guy Ian, he said, oh Oscar now that I've spoken to you, I think maybe we can do that. And then Gratton Kirk, you might know him, Gretchen Kirk, uh, 30 years. Um, a so, lot of him, yes. Yes, yeah. So Grattan happens to be, now the, he's a good friend of mine, both with him, he happens to be the CEO of Exclusive Books and he told me the same thing. He says, Oscar, do you know the best seller is 5,000 and you want to sell 210? I said, that's when it's going to happen. And it took me an hour to convince him how I was going to do it. And now he believes it as well. So now I've got the whole team believing that we're going to do this. So now the mindset has changed from we're going to sell 5,000, we're going to sell 210,000. And then another guy called David Goggins, I don't know if you read his book, it's called Can't Hurt Me. is a a, a, a Marine. yeah. yeah, And he sold 3 million uh, books, but that's a different mark. South Africa's. Um, I want to do the two ten, but he sold three million. I said, okay, I'll be happy with two million because most of those international sales will be audiobooks and Kindles and Amazon, not hardcover. So, and my goal for there is two million. He'll say what? I said, well, the best way, the only way I know how to get to that number is I'm going to make sure that uh, Coach uh, Bill Gates, who loves his paddling, I- I'm going to try and get him to uh, coach and he's only got 35 million followers. So I only have to get 10% of his followers to buy. And if he says, this is a good book and this guy can coach, I'm sure I can do the two million. So again, I've made all these plans and the people can't believe it. So that's, that's my next goal, you know, so I'm working hard to that and getting strong and then also making sure I've got a really good talk. And, and and this, this podcast is really nice for me to, uh, I'm always so difficult to find out what, has made me so good for so long. I mean, understand? I'm still winning. I'm one last, you know. So what is it? You know, and 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 I'm not, I'm a normal person. I think I'm very normal.
0: Sure. So it's fascinating listening to that because I, I coach a lot of athletes through the transition from being a player to retirement. And one of the things I say, and you actually just triggered that, is figure out what your formula for success is in sport and if you can take that same formula it's just a different content and apply that in a business context and what i'm hearing you doing with the book is you have a very clear goal of metaphorically winning the biggest bestseller here in south africa so and an absolute belief behind it but that's not enough it sounds like in that hour you sat and you've gone through this is my strategy of exactly how we're going to achieve the extraordinary. Um, and you talk about the 2 million. I mean, it, it was only a, a couple of weeks back that I, I looked on my LinkedIn and obviously I follow you. And here I watch you paddling, obviously with a, with a GoPro on and you've got your mic up and you're paddling, talking about looking to coach Bill Gates. So you're putting stuff out there, you're doing stuff differently. It's, It's an amazing entrepreneurial mindset that you bring incredibly big goals, um, work incredibly hard and meticulously and detailed of how to achieve them and have the belief behind it. And, you know, you you put those two things in a couple of special ingredients and chuck in a bit of luck. Yeah,
1: (laughs) you need that as well. Believe Um, me, you need luck. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking about it. I, I, I'm funny how stupid this game. You remember when T- Simcox was batting and the ball went through the wickets remember that and he got a hundred yes, yes. I mean yeah. tell me um, that's not I
0: <laughs> Yeah, I, I was sitting at the, I, I was working with the team at the time I was the fitness trainer and the ball went as in between middle and off stump and Simo yeah. still claims it happened because of his clean living it was his reward for yeah. clean oh, living that's <laughs> definitely that Simo can never say that yeah <laughs> Oscar, one last question. If I had a great question for you now, what would it be? Uh,
1: what? Uh, what? I don't know. What is your? What is your message to all the cancer fighters out there? Maybe I don't know. I don't, it's a good one to ask a question, and, and I think that's something because in all this, I always loved coaching. So like you like coaching, I coach. I was just in Israel last week in coaching as well, and I love coaching people. And even if they don't want to get coached, I'll coach them because I know a little bit more than them. So uh, it's to coach people to to overcome their their, their cancer and, and, and live life much better than they think they, they should be, you know, because I think people get painted in the box and they think, oh, you know, I've got cancer and chemo and I, I'm supposed to feel bad. And it's amazing how many people say, no, Oscar, you've had chemo today. You mustn't battle. I said, no, I'm going to battle right now. And the, the people are like, what, are you crazy? This guy's crazy. And the doctors think you're crazy. Everybody thinks you're crazy. But at the end of the day, you've got to make your life normal. And to make it normal, you've got to go and paddle and you've
0: got to have a glass of wine and, and don't believe that you're sick. Okay, so, that, that would be your message to people battling cancer.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I think it's important to do, for them to have a better life, you know, and it's, it's amazing how many people just go down, you know. It's, 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 I just talked about I was in Guadeloupe. Can you imagine this? And this is, I was in Guadeloupe, I had my PCR test, huh? you know, PCR test, and it comes back, you're positive. You know what I told them? I said, You've got to be crazy. Test me again. I said, No, we can't do it. So I just went to another chemist and I got it tested, and guess what? I was positive. I was negative again. I was negative. So I just had that mindset. I just had the belief I'm not, I haven't got this, but i know and I can see it in so many people. They get that negative test. And then they said, oh yeah, maybe I've got a little bit of a sniff. She, now I know why that I've got the little sniff and they just go down that rabbit hole. It's amazing how many people that happens to, you know, so that, that's something that you've got to just see. No, it's not me. I'm, I'll That's what I said. There's no way. I would have had five tests if, to finally get a, a, a negative uh, PCR because I don't just don't believe it.
0: I love that mindset, Oscar. So, I mean, the reality is we're, we're, we're all busy dying. Every yes. second we're, close, exactly. we're closer to dying. 100%. We don't know when it is. People with cancer have got a slightly better idea, but at the end of the road, and it sort of goes back to that the beautiful saying from the movie Shawshank Redemption that comes up for me now is... Andy Dufresne, I think, says you can you can either get busy living or you can get busy dying. Exactly, and I think that's a great one. I remember that, yeah, Andy Dufresne on the top of
1: the not even, and he didn't drink the beer. It was a great movie. I loved it. I loved yeah. You yeah, know, that's, the, that's the, and and that's what life is. I, don't, I again, I, I'm not I'm one of these guys. Like I used to have the month of no drinking, and I thought, okay, I'm going to stop that now because. And maybe if I really get start getting fitter and faster, maybe I will do my month again because I just thought life's living. So why? why not? I mean, I do a lot of fasting, so that's sort of my fast for two or three days, and, and I only eat once a day. So, and I only eat when I'm social. So I do a lot of fasting and things like that. So I'm, I'm not on the booze all the time, So which is good. So then I don't really need to do the month, but I can do it like that. And people
0: can't believe that I can just do that and nothing are. Wow. Sure, Oscar, it's been absolutely fascinating just listening to some of your formula for success. You you, you really figured a way and you were ahead of your time to figure out how to get busy winning and keep winning and do all the things necessary to set that up to happen. And now you get two, three years ago, you get the message that you've got this uncurable cancer and you are applying that formula to keep busy living, keep on top. And you've got your strategy for not only success with the book and paddling and everything else you do, um, but also for living life to the fullest. So, I mean, it's just an, an amazing story, um, an amazing example. Um, and you just translated that now into the cancer space, an amazing example and, and support and shining light for people who who buying into some of the negativity, that, or a lot of it that's out there. So um, you continue to be a a real beacon of shining light and a wonderful role model and example. And you have been, since I met you 25 years ago, Tim Notes at Spawn Science, and it's awesome to be having this combination, conversationized to really slightly older, balding bullies, yeah, store, exactly. giving a good go.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. As I say, age is a number, but let me tell you, it, is, it does make, sometimes it, when you get out of bed, sometimes, uh, let me tell you, when you get out of bed, when you've done your, your cancer, your transplant you do feel your age and then then you just get stronger and then you feel young again that's love about that yeah and i definitely believe it and i appreciate chatting to you patty it's been a lot of fun making me think and work out what makes me different it's always difficult <laughs> to see what it is and hopefully we've got some good recording and and we can share it to the world
0: I did say that Oscar is not far off being superhuman. For my part, I left the conversation having decoded some of his lessons from success. Specifically, how he sets audacious yet achievable goals, then plans and prepares excellently, is genuinely entrepreneurial and is thinking about performance, not just doing what everyone else is doing, but seeking to do more and be smarter. And then in competition time, being acutely focused in each moment on the detail of the task at hand. It's been said that performance is about being fully present and focused in each moment of competition. That's where the saying, focus on the process and let the result look after itself comes from. Oscar's level of planning and attention to detail requires his mind to be fully present on executing the task required of him. This formula for success of plan, prepare, focus, and execute is universal. It's just that Oscar goes above and beyond the ordinary to absolutely nail these, not just in the water, but in the game of life and in the face of his so-called life-threatening cancer. Thanks again, Oscar, for being so generous with your time and sharing, and to you, the audience, for offering your valuable time to listen into our conversation. See you in two weeks' time for the next episode of Lessons from the World's Best.